Navy Federal is proud to serve more than 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that's 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org MLB for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. And welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. We're recording this mere hours before the All-Star Game, so we won't have any coverage of the game itself this week. But what we do have is a conversation with Eric Longenhagen from Fangraphs about the Futures game, and also a conversation with our own Zach Cram about Monday's electrifying home run derby. And if you'd like to read a little bit about that, go to TheRinger.com and read Danny Heifetz's blog. Uh, But first, we're going to talk to Zach. All right, so here to talk about the Home Run Derby. Uh, out of the first, the most exciting thing to happen on a baseball field since the World Series, maybe, uh, is Zach Cram. Zach, uh, I'm very excited for this. And as you noted last night, the Home Run Derby may be more exciting than four of the five World Series games from last year. Yeah, it was kind of a crappy World Series. That's, that's cherry picking, but I, I stand by that. It was phenomenal. Yeah, and so another thing I said last night is like the the home run derby rules. We've talked about this. We've talked about the home run derby rules rules change on this podcast. But I is there a better rule change in sports in the past ten years? Well, I think what we see with the home run derby is first how difficult these all star festivities are. The idea of all star weekend is so far removed now in you know the era of streaming and MLB TV where what is this game that's a relic from decades ago when people couldn't see every player every night and players never face each other through years or decades? Uh, It's kind of not necessary now. So figuring out a way to adopt new rules that are fun and engaging and actually attract viewers uh, for a long period of time is difficult. We see that in other sports too. Like, I don't know how many iterations of different rules the dunk contest has undergone over the last few years, but I'm a basketball fan. I don't care about the the dunk contest anymore. Uh, so the fact that not only is the home run derby exciting, but like you said, they made a rule change and it actually worked is maybe the most remarkable part of this whole thing. Yeah, and it's it just brings together so many great things. It's the the fact that guys like you know, people used to complain about LeBron or Kobe Bryant did well. Didn't Kobe do a, a dunk contest when he was a rookie or something like that? But like once he got established, the big stars didn't do the dunk contest. This is like sort of anointing the the next generation of stars. You know, I I think people know Alex Bregman. I don't know that you know if you if you're a uh, fairly devout baseball fan, you've watched Carlos Santana for years and years. Some of these guys are the exact up and coming players that Major League Baseball should want to promote. And it's very cool that they get to have this uh, this stage. Um, but it's also you could tell how impressed, you know, how much the the players watching on the sidelines get into it, like how impressive they find all this, how much fun they have, like the the sketch comedy that that comes out of it. And I, it, when you get it's not just like 
the the obvious comparison for what Vladimir Guerrero did last night is uh, Josh Hamilton because it's the previous big home run derby round. Uh, it's not just that; it's it just feels like so in, intense in the moment uh, when there's um, when there's a clock on it. And when it's just rapid fire swings as opposed to you know taking one pitch after another, uh, when there's and the it wouldn't have been nearly as cool if it hadn't had that head to head element with Jock Peterson in the second round. I think that's the that's the it's not just the show that that Vladito put on the the length of the home runs, the violence of the swings. It's the drama of this this you know one-on-one competition it was just so cool to watch and of course that was maybe a once in a decade experience that i what they went to three different uh tie rounds where it was first there was a minute uh, of a tie break and then a three swing swing off and then that was tied so they had to do another three swing swing off but even beyond that i i think you're right the very format itself creates these opportunities for drama what's the best part of baseball it's the one-on-one mano a mano batter versus pitcher matchup we don't really care about the pitchers as much now but they're still figuring out ways to create a one-on-one matchup Uh, i also think the fact that they tried to make it even more important this year raising the prize pool so that the winner gets a million dollars maybe that actually mattered this year if you look at the players who accepted the invitation i think it's a whole nother conversation about should pete alonzo be in a situation where he gets to triple his annual earnings uh by winning the home run derby whether we want to talk about compensation for young players in baseball but that fact means Pete Alonso could have tripled the salary. Ronald Acuna could have basically tripled the salary. Vlad Jr. could have basically tripled the salary. And those are the last three guys standing. Two rookies who are going to be the future of the league for a while and a second-year player who's going to be the future of the league for a while. Uh, so I wonder if that will continue to shape the Derby in years going forward, that it will become a true opportunity for young players to basically introduce themselves to a national audience. I would love to see them open it up even to like one prospect for you, have a minor league home run derby, and then the winner of that gets to make the final eight. Uh, and then he can be the underdog everyone roots for. And also someone people are excited about if he's a double A or triple A player to watch for him to be promoted in a year or two. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a, a thing going around uh, a couple weeks ago of, uh, I think there was some like Mariner spring training thing in the 90s uh, when Ken Griffey Jr. and A-Rod were on the team. And, uh, they were supposed to be, the big league team was supposed to uh, face like their double A team and the game got rained out. But they were like, well, you know, the fans all came here. Let's give them something. So they had a, a Mariners versus minor league uh, home run derby, which is awesome enough with Ken Griffey Jr. and A-Rod. And the guy who won it was uh, like a 22 year old David Ortiz, who was in uh, who was in double A or uh a single A at the time or where, you know, whatever level he was, but like something like that, this is like, whenever you, you hear the, uh, you know, whenever that guy comes up from, from then on, it's like, Oh, this is going to be that guy from the home run derby. And if he knocks out Matt Chapman in the first round, for instance, or Carlos Santana, like, Oh, this is the guy who, when he was 20 years old, you know, maybe a couple months ago, that was Jordan Alvarez. Maybe that's, um, Alec Baum or, or Joe Adele this year. You know, I don't know who that who that prospect would have been, but uh, yeah, that that would be cool to watch. But at the same time, 
I I love it. I, I frankly I love how chaotic and confused the broadcast is. Like it's what what I was saying last night. It's like you know with the split screen and the interviews and the the all the the graphics and stuff. Let's just go full Blade Runner on this. This is you know it's 2019. It's the future. Life is is chaotic and and jarring and and let's just steer into that. It was it was just so much fun to watch and for. You know, I don't want to talk about the the contrast between the prize money and the the rookie salaries and stuff, um, because we do that every week and it's just sort of a drag. And last night was just so entirely joyful. Yeah, I think joyful is the right word for it. The very sound that the ball made off of Vlad's bat just from the moment he started hitting in the first round, I didn't really have a, a rooting interest going in. I was just excited to watch the derby happen, I immediately wanted Vlad to advance through the first round throughout that entire tiebreak uh, experience with Jock Peterson. I wanted Vlad to win just so I could see him hit for another four minutes. And I think the derby has settled on on a pretty nice format where I think the first year that uh, they went to this time format, it was five minutes. I think four minutes is a much better uh, time I would even maybe go to three minutes just to because it seems like it, it's snappy and it moves along quickly and it's nice to have three hours of baseball where there's a lot of action happening at, at any one time which is kind of funny because when we talk about real baseball it's our home runs not action because of the three true outcomeization of the game but that wasn't a concern at all last night I think there's also the contrast in styles is really fun to watch back to back to back. Like Vlad, basically 80% of his home runs were hit to the exact same spot. He, looked like, he looked like he was start starting a lawnmower, just mm-hmm. the way he was ripping his hands through the zone. And, and Ronald Acuna was hitting like lazy fly balls to right field that would just travel 420 feet. Kind of like Aaron Judge a couple years ago was spraying balls across all portions of the outfield fence. And then, you know, you have Jack Peterson was hooking balls down the line and it's fun to see the, the convergence of styles as a reminder of we're in a, in an environment now where so many runs are scored via the home run. I'm not as concerned as that, uh, as other people, but even within a lot of home runs being hit, there's still a diversity of style and a diversity of body type and a diversity of swing that's able to produce these homers. And I think you do need to, see that contrast up close uh in order to really appreciate it uh because you know you just when you see two home runs a game they call and they come like an hour and 15 minutes apart they're you don't like you almost don't appreciate like the strength and the the coordination that it takes to to hit a ball out of the park and i don't know like just the the pace of of the of last night's home run derby was just it was, it was jaw-dropping. And there were just so many home runs hit. I think maybe the ball had something to play with that, although haven't they intentionally juiced balls oh, in yeah. the home run derby in the like, past? I don't know. I'm I'm sort of like scientifically interested in the juiced ball, but morally apathetic. Like I don't think it's undermining the integrity of the game or anything. Um the ball just sort of is what it is at this point. But also, I super don't give a shit if they juice the balls for the home run derby. I will say, like, the one pedantic note I want to make is stop comparing home run totals from different 
eras oh, of the yeah. home run derby. Like the fact that Vlad hit more home runs than Josh Hamilton is absolutely meaningless because the format was so different. The fact that people are like Vlad has more home runs tonight than some teams have this entire season doesn't really mean anything because there's no context there. We can just enjoy it it's without not data. having data. That's yeah, that's the difference between trivia and data, though. We don't have to compare Vlad to the Marlins to understand how impressive what he did last night was. And like, that's the the one thing I note there is we don't need to to worry about these comparisons. We know the home run derby is better now. I think I have maybe this is just a change in how I've watched the derby. But before the change, like the last really true memory I had of the home run derby was Josh Hamilton, which is almost a decade ago when they made the change. I remember things from every year that uh, since then. Yeah, I mean, I might even go. I don't remember why I didn't watch the the 08 home run derby, but like I remember the there were Bobby Abreu won one year and Ryan Howard won the next year, and that was like you know being a, a young Phillies fan. Those were big home run derby moments. This is, but even then, like since the Josh Hamilton moment, there was a sense that you know it was it became sort of perfunctory, like the dunk contest. I don't, I couldn't remember the derby like being cool. Since uh, like Ken Griffey Jr. was in it or when it was McGuire versus Sosa or Bonds, you know, it's sort of that turn of the century steroid era home run uh, binge like this is it's it's become must watch again. Like I made you know, I wasn't writing about it. This isn't going to impact analysis. I didn't have to watch it last night, but I would have, you know, even if if I weren't a baseball writer because I knew it was going to be interesting. Yeah, that's what I think made the Hamilton Derby so singular. I remember I was at basketball camp at the time, and I think we were in the cafeteria at dinner, and there was one TV that was showing it kind of small in the corner. And slowly as his round went on, because that was back when it wasn't timed, it was you had 10 outs, basically, so you could take pitches. So that round lasted a long time as you just hit home run after home run after home run, and people just started drifting over and drifting over until there was a swarm around the TV because people just couldn't really believe what was going on. That also had the advantage of Josh Hamilton's backstory. It was the last year in Yankee Stadium. So there were certain, certainly contextual advantages too, but that's what made it stand out. It was the only one, whereas now it's an every year phenomenon. Uh, one thing before we get off the home run derby, uh, I want to have take a moment to appreciate Clayton Kershaw's daughter yelling, let's go jock, let's Excellent. go jock. That was like the the fact his interview with Jess Mendoza, she's uh, like, well, it's going to take the family to dinner, but we had to come back because we heard what was going on. Like that was sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be too grandiose. He spoke for America in that moment. And you made this point earlier, but I think it definitely struck out last night. Like I think at one point uh, you saw in the first round, Matt Chapman just looking sick as he reacted to Vlad or Nolan Arenado throwing up his hands in laughter. And it is one thing for us to appreciate the astonishing feats that I could never hit one ball 440 feet. But to see the guys who do that for a living still react with astonishment, I think takes it to a whole nother level. Kind of like, uh, we know Mike Trout is amazing, but then to hear the other all-stars talk about how he's amazing elevates it even more. I'd like even to see more of that next year to see uh, interviews with not just the contestants, but the random guys uh, on the sideline yeah. who are just enjoying it and reacting with hands thrown in the air. Yeah, there are great moments like when uh, when they were talking to uh, Alex Bregman's teammates, and they're all like, say, you know, tell them what advice they gave and and what they expected. That was, you know, it's it's good to see 
it's it makes it cooler to see that the players, not only the players taking part, but the players watching are enjoying themselves and also impressed by what's going on. Hopefully the All-Star game will be just as exciting, but uh, I feel like I'm the only person who actually watches all the pitches and is excited by that because it's a normal baseball game. It's not a, a timed bracket. Yeah, I'm interested to see what uh, Sandy Alcantara does. Uh, in, in <laughs> Sandy uh, Alcantara before, versus James McCann. Yeah, there we go. Uh, before we go, I did want to call out uh, Eric Chesterton, a friend of mine who writes for Cut 4. Uh, he took all the distances of the home runs uh, hit last night and said they tallied up to 24.8 miles and then went and ran it, which, uh, I don't know, feels like showing off to me, but that's another impressive a uh, feat of physical endurance. Uh, wow. Based out of That's that. I, I know idea. you're a runner. Like I, you know, I, I talk about, you said you couldn't hit a, a, a ball 440 feet. I, you know, I'm not sure I could run 440 feet. So shout <laughs> out to, to Eric Chesterton for, for putting on a feat, feat of strength of his own. All right. All right. Uh, so we will have the, we will have second half action to talk about next week, but uh, until then. Finding a new job is a lot of work. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. Just download the ZipRecruiter job search app, let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in, and its technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you'll like and puts your profile in front of employers who may be looking for someone like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know. So if you're interested in the job, you can apply. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. My listeners should download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. So my next guest uh, will be familiar to listeners of Fangraphs Audio as well as to this podcast because he was just on a month ago to talk about the draft. And now uh, he is back from Cleveland where he saw the Futures game, but got out of town before the actual All-Star game. Uh, it is Fangraphs lead prospect analyst, Eric Loggenhagen. Hey, man, how's it going? I don't know. I enjoyed the the hell out of the Futures game on Sunday. Uh, what were your impressions? Well, I'm, I'm curious to know what you thought of like the broadcast and stuff, because it's it's interesting to be... I the, fucking hated it. Did you really? I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's... I'm, I'm trying not to yell about broadcasters on Twitter, uh, because it's just like, somehow like that i mean one it doesn't make me feel better it just makes me feel even more powerless but this is not a great place for harold reynolds uh in uh in a broadcasting arena particularly when you have jim callis who's one of the best in the business in the booth uh i want to hear everything that jim callis says about these prospects i'm less interested in harold reynolds's uh opinion and so there was there was just it, it was just a lot of uh and you know, I you've got Ken Griffey Jr. in the house. Obviously, you put him in the booth if if you have uh, the opinion. I thought he was very um, obviously he was fun and charming, but also like very uh, supportive of of the young prospects, which is nice for a former player of his stature and is rarer than it should be. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I there's just some confusion I think about what this is supposed to be. I would like it to be a showcase. Like I would like Jim Callis to to tell me about you know this is what Wander Franco is going to be and you know this is where he is now this is what you should expect and the same about Adele and Nate Pearson and all these guys who were really impressive on the field and uh, you know less like chuckling time with ex jocks. I get so. it. Like I know, and we've talked about this before. Probably we're not the target 
market for the futures yes. game broadcast. The way we engage with this stuff is drastically different than the way the layperson that they want interested in the game to engage with it. Uh, even being at the game, I, you know, I talked to a family of four in the stands. I talked to a couple like, uh, college and high school aged young men who were in the stands and the way that they, they are, uh, absorbing this, that particular game is like nothing remotely close to the way I go about it. Um, so, so, you know, it's hard for me to sit here and, and tell MLB how to market their product when like I'm just in for nerd reasons and for science that have like nothing to do with, uh, entertainment, the things that they're trying to, to get people interested in, in the thing for. Yeah. So I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I just think this is a bad way to market the future stars. I just think like you could, like you could appeal to a mass audience without dumbing it down is my contention. Um, and I think that there's, I, I, I think this is a complaint I have across all sports broadcasts is that they don't give the viewers enough credit. Uh, and I, I think there's a, a, you know, a large extent to which that's true in written sports coverage as well. Although probably less than, uh, less than that was the case five or 10 years ago. You know, you can, I also think it's, it's an opportunity to like get to hook people on this angle of the game. Like say, you know, explain the scouting scale, right. explain, you know, um, you know, what makes, you know, what you're looking for. Right. How is player this age value changing and, and stuff of, like that? Yeah. yeah. Right. Instead of just comparing, you know, every short Dominican right-hander to Pedro Martinez say, well, what did Pedro Martinez look like at this point is, uh, you know, when he was Sixto Sanchez's age or, uh, um, or Davy Garcia's age, or you know, tell that story about how uh, Davy Garcia apparently watches Pedro's what was it ninety nine All Star game uh, before every start <laughs> that we, we saw uh, get get a uh, uh, bandied around when he was on that hot streak before the break. So I, I just think there's a way to be to appeal to a broad audience while also being smart. And I I admit that that's a, a tough balance yes. to try to strike as someone who tries to tries to strike that balance. You know, I think I have to appeal to a somewhat broader and more casual audience than you do. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think there are very few instances like across media in general, where someone has struck that balance. Um, but like to prevent this from this conversation from devolving into, uh, us comparing our cynicism about like American culture. Um, and like why the Kardashians in reality TV is so pervasive and like how baseball it would be smart. Like if baseball, yeah, I would to like to sport. eventually talk about these. Yeah, we should talk about players. Yeah. So, so it was different this year because it was only seven innings. They did BP and infield and then took a long break for the celebrity softball game. And then they came back and played the futures game. Uh, so I like had to watch Dr. Oz swing and stuff, uh, for a couple hours before uh, I went back to work. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it's hard to evaluate people properly, uh, when you're only watching pitchers throw for an inning, when you're only seeing individuals take two at bats, especially when, you know, Will Craig was hit by two pitches, uh, you know, when your guys strike out looking and like the, the look is limited. Really the most important part of the day for Kylie and I is BP. It's watching 
each of the players take batting practice one after another so that you can make apples to apples comparisons uh, between elite talents with, without having to drive or fly several hours uh, to, to see them at separate ballparks. Uh, and so like that is why it is most useful. I thought the game had good pace. I thought it was, uh, there was more talent there than is typical for a futures game. Uh, there, you know, the Jordan Lennertons of the world, we're not, we're not playing first base this year. It's just every once in a while, you're going to get a handful of players who are lower end prospects who were just sort of put into the game for positional reasons or, you know, country of origin used to be a thing that mattered, uh, would, would sort of affect the amount of talent that was there. So yeah, like I, I had a good time and was locked in for three hours or however long it was. Um, I was I was down the line watching hitters while Kylie was behind the plate, uh, locked in on pitchers, and then I you know I watched the the game uh, this morning on mute. <laughs> so uh, so I got to you know see what it was like to to watch the the broadcast itself and kind of get a look at the pitchers that way. Yeah, that was the actually the first question I was going to ask you before you hijacked this interview and and started asking me questions <laughs> was you know. I watch this game because I haven't seen most of these guys before. Or, like when I see them, it was years ago in college or, or you know, last year's Futures game even was the last time I saw most of these players that I've seen before. Whereas, you know, you get around, you watch these guys throughout the minors, you talk to front offices. I can't imagine that this impacts your evaluation of any one player all that much. So what do you what do you try to get out of it? Right. Yeah. Really, it really doesn't. Kylie and I will sit down and have a conversation and like compare notes because we basically went from the game to dinner to bed to traveling uh, first thing yesterday. Um, and so like we haven't even talked about it yet. This is the first conversation I'm having with anybody about the game. Uh, and so yeah, like other than a few, like there are a few strange corner cases like Helio Ramos, the Giants center fielder who was in the game last year. It's just there was something about him last year that was just not as good as it was this year, and it's like been borne out in his statistical performance through during the season. Uh, it was apparent when I saw him during spring training that like he maybe he was hurt or something last year. I don't know. Just like his physical tools this season are back to where they were when he was in high school and um, better than they were last year. Uh, so. If there's there are certain cases like that uh, where you reconfigure what you think of a player, um, we luckily like because Helio plays ten minutes away from my house during the spring. Like we were already there with him, but um, but then there were a couple players who we just hadn't seen and like really needed updated looks on. Uh, Jaron Duran with the Red Sox was their seventh round pick out of Long Beach State last year. We can't remember an individual who was drafted that low and then was in the futures game the following yeah, year. I think Jim said something to that effect on the broadcast. Right. And so, you know, I saw Jaron Duran in college at some point just because Long Beach, like at some point I ran into him, but like I didn't take notes. Like a college player who gets drafted that late is not a high priority uh, for, for us, but uh, his performance statistically this year, albeit at lower levels, has been uh, incredible! Like he hit 400 for the first two months of the year. Uh, his, his, you know, someone sent me his uh, like underlying contact metrics, you know, the TrackMan stuff, and it's supportive of that performance. The eyeball scouts are in on him as like a table setting plus plus running 
uh, center field type. And like to see him take BP and, and play against the guys who we know are elite talents is like very instructive and helps us sort of calibrate where we should have him lined up and the way we should be talking about him as a prospect. Um, so he was, he was like the top, the most important uh, evaluation of the day. Uh, and there were a few others like that, like seeing where Devin Williams, uh, the Brewers reliever, seeing where he was at. Uh, he was the oldest player in the game. He's been hurt a lot. Uh, the, the last couple times I've seen him, he's been like 90-93 as a starter with like a good breaking ball. It's always been more of a relief look because of his command. Uh, but has, he's really bounced back this year. He's, he's touched a hundred. He's been in like the mid nineties. We only got to see three pitches from him. Uh, so we did not like really get the look we wanted on him to, to be able to confidently, uh, move him on the board over at Fangraphs where like all of, we have like all of our reports and the prospects are ranked and stuff. Um, so like that was disappointing. And this just, you know, the nature of this event is that sometimes that happens. Uh, we almost did not get to see Luis Patino pitch at the end. Uh, and, you know, he had the game ended on time, had Ben Bowden come in and close the game out for the NL. We would not have seen Luis Patino, who's, you know, a 5'10 kid who throws 99. Like, that's, it's incredible to watch someone that little with that kind of arm speed and just, know like, okay, there's the 6'4 guy who does it. Here's the 6'3 guy who does it. And now here comes this, you know, this little. There's Nate Pearson who's 14. Right. Like it doesn't surprise you as much to see someone like Pearson who's like very obviously a physical beast, you know, come in, throw 99-101. Like you've seen that before. But to to watch a 170-pound kid come in and do it is like, it's, it's remarkable. And so, yeah, it was. Uh, it's, it's tough. You know, you try to piece together what you can, uh, as far as helping with, with the player evaluations. So one thing that, that jumped out from this class sort of was the, and I don't know if this is just me just not watching, you know, elite 20 year olds play baseball all that much, but the guys who like, who look like they're running on pogo sticks, you know, it's not just guys like Tremel and Joe Adele, but like the way Dustin May hopped off the ground or hopped hopped off the mound, like there was just an incredible amount of athleticism from this group, and I, I don't know if that's just me or if that's something that stuck out to you too. No, I think uh, yeah that that play, and then the play that I thought was the most the most impressive sequence in the game when uh, Matt Manning was pitching, Isan Diaz hit a chopper. To Manning's right toward third base. And like off the bat, I thought it was just going to be one of those oh, tough, yeah. tough luck singles. Uh, but Manning fields the ball, wheels, throws a perfect strike to first base. He gets Diaz. And then Evan White, the Mariners' first baseman, uh, who's like one of the best defensive first basemen in the minors. Mm-hmm. He really impressed me all. Like he went yeah. 0 for 1, but that ball, I think that ball was hit at like 112 miles an hour. Like, yeah, he scorched one right not at Tremel. Yeah. Not a guy I was, I've been particularly high on, but I, I think he had a great game. Uh, but so White fields that throw and then in the blink of an eye uh, is throws another strike to second base to try to catch the runner who was going to second base like napping. Wander Franco fields that ball and then attempts to tag that runner between his legs, like with that Javier Baez type of speed you know like we're watching elite hands and actions and and athletes i think that to some degree uh teams are so, like 
better at selecting for it now. Uh, and then we probably were just a little bit lucky that more of those types of guys were in the game this year. But yeah, it is, it's pretty incredible. The, the player dev side of this process is the part of baseball that has grown the most over the last five years or so. And some of that is pitch design and stuff like that. And some of it is just strength and conditioning and uh, players taking better care of their, their bodies and, uh, you know, learning from the Jesus Monteros of the world, you know, of how, like how to go about doing this without squandering your talent. Um, and so I think some of that has to do with it as well. Uh, like the, the athletes are not well paid and the nutrition for minor leaguers is still generally an issue, but the, the facilities that they have access to, to, to do strength and conditioning is, uh, it's pretty incredible. And I think a lot of the best ones are taking advantage of it. And that's part of why they're the best. All right. One more quick one. And then we got to go. Um, so it, this can be either Franco or Joe Adele or some other guy who's in the top 10, who is like your guy in this group, whether it's one of those top prospects or somebody a little bit farther off the, the beaten path that you're really beating the drum for. That's a good question. Yeah. Wanda Franco is incredible. Uh, if you go look at what he did in the Appy League at the same age that Vladimir Guerrero was doing those types of things in the Appy League, and then bear in mind that this is a switch hitting shortstop. Uh, if we were lining those two up right now, like if Vladdy were still prospect eligible, I'm not sure who we'd have at number one. Uh, so that should kind of give you an indication of. Yeah, it says a lot. You know, I don't know. Like, I feel like to a degree, they're all they're all my guy to some degree. Um, but yeah, like Franco, I think is everybody's guy. Uh, you know, Mackenzie mm. Gore is incredible. He did not have a great inning. It was clear he had jitters. Yeah, I did. I wasn't that impressed by him. Uh, but yeah, right, and that was inning, that's so. part of the problem with Gore, and it was why it took me a little extra time to get on him as a high schooler because what he does in one inning is not that blow you away. Like he's not going to do the Nate Pearson stuff. Gore is four pitches command. You know, it's, it's the type of thing that grows on you over a longer period of time. He's just not built for the one inning type of showcase uh, environment. Gavin Lux, Gavin Lux, I know he struck out and I don't think he had a hit in the game, but, uh, and like I have some concerns about him throwing, from shortstop, but just from like a bat speed and lift perspective and like what his body has become since high school. When he was a high schooler in Wisconsin, it was thought at the time that this is a glove only shortstop who maybe hits enough to be an everyday type of shortstop. And now it's like, he's clearly got plus power, uh, at least. And he's, he's a dude like offensively. Uh, so so the, like his transformation is pretty incredible and just the way the Dodgers have developed hitters is, is has been so strong. Uh, I, I, it would surprise me if he's not a star. I, there's, I'm not sure what is going to happen defensively there because there are throwing issues. It might just mean he moves to second base. Uh, but it also might mean he like moves to left field, but I like, I don't think it's going to matter. I think that like, there's a monster middle of the order bat lurking there. Um, and I guess like the guy who surprised me the most would be like Alec Thomas, who's the Diamondbacks. See their second round pick last year. He's he's another smaller guy, 5'11, 175. Uh, his dad is the White Sox strength and conditioning coach. And his BP was pretty impressive for like how little he is. 
uh, I was sort of taken aback by that. I've seen him hit, like he, he was an advanced high schooler. So he was like at area codes and at like some of these big events that I go see uh, as an underclassman already. But like the player that he might, he might have some sneaky power. Like he might be someone who, uh, in, we sort of maybe have some tweener concerns coming into this game that when we watch him take BP along with everybody else, we start to slide him up, uh, our list. So yeah, like Alec Thomas is the other guy from the game who I left, uh, more impressed with than when I arrived. All right. You can find Eric's work at Fangraphs. You can find him on Twitter at Longenhagen. You can find him, uh, haunting taco stands around the, the greater Phoenix area. And, uh, I'm happy that you can find him here. So thanks for coming on. Hey, salsa bars, salsa bars with like pickled carrots and stuff. If you've got those, uh, I'll be there. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you uh, next time we have prospect stuff to, to deal with. All right. Sounds good, Mike. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. They're experts in acoustics and engineering, even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug in your speaker and open the app and connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. As you know, I have a Sonos Beam hooked up to my TV TV, and it is just as easy as they say. Just plug in a couple cables, download the app, and boom, theater quality sound in a compact, stylish, modernist package. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. Joining me now is Ben Lindbergh, the uh, Ringer's foremost authority on The Walking Dead and uh, indeed on many things baseball. Ben, thanks for coming on. Good to be here. So, uh, we're going to talk about the news and not just the news that I've gotten Zach uh, into the Expanse books. So we will soon be changing the name of this podcast to Amos Burton fanfic. Um, <laughs> You're going to have gonna... to get me into the book soon. I watched the show. No, you, course, haven't, but... you haven't read the books? No. Ah, we're going <laughs> to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I can't think of a segue. This is one thing that I, I you know, I, I'm really going to try to get better at in the second half of the season. This is an area of improvement as the league adjusts to me. I've got to come up with better segues on the fly. Uh, we're going to talk about the second half of the season. So we've spent uh, the bulk of the first two thirds of this podcast talking about all-star. Well, it's not all-star weekend, but you know what I mean? Uh, and we're going to look ahead, you and I. Um, so the first thing that, that I want to bring up is the pennant race in both leagues is a little messy, and I did not expect that to be the case, uh, certainly in the American League, uh, and in the National League, it's just total chaos. Yeah, it really is. Uh, the latter was somewhat predictable. We knew that the NL would be, I think, more entertaining in that yes. respect than the AL this year, but I think it's exceeded expectations in just how unclear the playoff picture is right now in that there are certainly favorites and there are teams that are locks for the playoffs at this point, but there are very few teams that are really out of it. I mean, as we speak, there are, I think, only six teams that are more than seven games away from the closest playoff spot, whether that's mm -hmm. a wild card spot or something in the division. So there's there only, are, only one such team in the National League. Right. Yeah. One team, the Marlins. And, you know, there, there are some teams, the teams that are out of it are way out of it. <laughs> so you have the Marlins and you have the Royals and you have the Orioles, et cetera. But there aren't that many teams that can't 
dream that can't kind of look around and say, this could happen. We're close enough. We're within striking distance. And I think that's interesting in the context of just pennant races, but it's also really interesting in the context of the trade deadline, which is almost upon us. And that's already an unknown because of the new unified deadline. And we have to wonder what effects that would have. But I don't think we can assess that in isolation because we also have to deal with this really crowded playoff picture where there are very few teams that can pack it in in a way that I think would be palatable to their fan bases. I mean, if you look at the playoff odds, there are certainly some teams that are nominally in it that probably aren't going to really make a run, but it's still hard to sell and decide that you're going to officially rule yourself out when you're still close enough that fans look and think we could do this. Yeah, and that's something I'm I I imagine will sort itself out before July 31st. Uh cuz doing the the mid-season power rankings that's going to be coming up in a couple days on the site, I noticed that a lot of the there's there's like a weird intersection of teams that got off to hot starts and are sort of coming back to to the pack like Tampa Bay, like Texas for instance. Um and teams that are that uh underachieved early in the season and are now back in playoff position or close to it. Cleveland, Boston, Washington mm-hmm. being the three biggest examples for me. And the, all those teams are sort of passing each other right now that they're, it's just, it just looks like a giant clump. And in the national league, this clump is, I don't know. There's one and a half good teams in the national league and one and a half bad teams. And everybody else is, is just sort of in that wild card race. I mean, most notably my favorite number from the, from where we sit right now in midseason is four and a half games from first place to last place in the National League Central. Right. And uh, not just that. I mean, the last place team in the Central is closer to first place than any other second place team in any division is mm-hmm. to its first place team, which is just really weird. I mean, I think we knew that the NL Central would be entertaining. We kind of hoped that the NL East would also be equally entertaining, and that has not actually proven to be the case. Although, you know, we might end up with a, a credible three-team it's, race at least yeah. there. So that's something. But yeah, the NL Central, I mean, you've got the Reds who are still five games under 500, but have been outscoring their opponents all season. And so what do you make of that? And then you have the Pirates who are ahead of them and and have not seemingly played as well. And then you have the Cubs who are talking about, you know, well, we may have to make major changes and they're a first place team right now. So that is just a, a jumble. And I don't really know what happens there. Whereas you also have a division like the NL West where you have three teams at 500 or over, and really the Rockies are one game under 500. So you have four contenders in that division, and yet the Dodgers are somehow running away with it nonetheless, just because the Dodgers are so good. So it's a very strange assortment of races we have right now, but I think a pretty compelling one. Yeah, and what I'm going to look for in the next couple of weeks is what happens to those teams that thought they were out of it and now find themselves back in, and the teams that probably before the season anticipated being sellers um, and what that does to, you know, can the Texas Rangers sell Mike, sell Mike minor when there are three games out of a playoff spot? Yeah. You know, right now BP has them at 2.4% to make the playoffs. And that is what it is. But even the most, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be so rational that I was going to sell my number one starting pitcher uh, when I was three games out of a playoff spot. So, mm-hmm. and the guys who are trapped in this, in, on these teams that are sort of on the bubble right now are Mike Miner, Zach Ranky, Trevor Bauer, who right. the Indians are still looking into to selling. Like every team except 
maybe the Dodgers and the Astros uh, needs another playoff quality starting pitcher. Every team that has the the capacity to to make it to the playoffs, they need at least one more starter. You know, maybe you throw the Nationals in there too because they're so strong at the front of the rotation. But the guys who can make a difference, you know, for some for some of these these uh, teams, like just getting another competent big league starter isn't going to be enough. They need somebody like Bauer or Miner to make an upgrade. And right now, we're Granky. And right now, those guys are trapped on. Not trapped, but they're they're on teams that are in this uncomfortable limbo. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how those front offices evaluate uh, their team's chances. And what I suspect will happen is some of those teams will just stumble out of the gate and be, you know, it's it's uh, difficult to sell getting rid of your best pitcher when you're three games out, not so much when you're six games out. And I think some of that will sort itself out in the next three weeks. But that's the the big storyline I'll be following. Yeah, there's some really fascinating situations there. Uh, what about the Giants, for instance, who they were kind of the most fascinating case of, of any team because it looked like they would be the ones that would dictate the deadline just because there weren't a lot of teams that appeared to be out of it but also had interesting players to offer to other teams because a lot of the teams that are out of it just don't really have much that would be attractive to other teams. Sorry, Mallory. Sorry, Orioles fans. There just isn't a lot there that's going to get anyone excited, no matter how willing they are to to package players and send them elsewhere. But the Giants, they're the team that, of course, has Bumgarner and, and has a bunch of other guys that would actually turn other teams' heads. And yet, even they are on a run now, and they're kind of you know nominally in it, and they have obviously been hesitant to move on from this core. And you know it's a new person running the baseball operations department there, but even Zaidi hasn't really made a whole lot of major moves since he came on. This seemed like the month when he could do that; he could embark on the rebuild. But right now, the Giants are only four games out of a wild card spot. So do they still do that? I don't know. You'd think that that would be the smart move, but it's hard again to yeah, sell that I, especially when you're talking about heroes you know like Bumgarner who of course fans don't really want to part with and want to see make one last run right I, I think you're being a little generous they're, they're actually five and a half games out of a wild card spot right now so it's that calculus is a little bit that's right um, yes yeah so it, they're closer to the point where I think you can say they're out of it also the, the minus 70 run differential uh points to them uh probably dropping rather than getting back into it. Yes. Although in this chaotic National League pennant race, you never know. You know, the emotional component of Bumgarner, I think everybody's sort of been stealing themselves for this, mm-hmm. that that he's going to move. This has always been, you know, Giants fans are not stupid. They could see what this team was going to uh, was going to be at the start of the season. They know Bumgarner is in sort of a weird spot. Uh, in terms of what he might demand uh, on his next contract, his contract's up at the end of the season. Um, his postseason reputation could cause him to maybe fetch more in a trade from a contender than you might think from a, a pitcher who's performing like he is. And there are other trade trips, chips, guys like Sam Dyson and Will Smith. I don't think there's anywhere near that uh, emotional uh, component. And, you know, those mm-hmm. are two really good relievers you know the last most people saw Dyson was that disastrous first week of the season with the the Texas Rangers but he's really bounced back and become uh, a solid relief option and as much as every team in baseball except for maybe the Dodgers and Astros needs another starting pitcher they all need more relief help too so I think you know yeah so I think the the Giants they're they are 
the team to watch this. Yes, this they month. make sense to to sell, and they've got a lot. They've got some interesting pieces to sell. Yes, and some of the teams that would be buyers would be looking to upgrade it. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly where they upgrade because some of their underperforming players. I mean, you look at the Cardinals, and you know their underperforming players are guys like Yadier Molina or, or Paul Goldschmidt, and you know you can't really upgrade at those spots. There aren't a lot of just like black holes in the lineups for some of these teams where I think the traditional trade deadline wisdom is it's easier to go from like a sub replacement level player to an average player than it is to go from, you know, maybe like a slightly below average player to someone who's going to really make a meaningful upgrade. There just aren't that many players who feet, who meet the description of like typical trade target and are also really good. And so I, I just don't know, you know, especially on the position player side. So there aren't that many options and there aren't that many places for some of these contending teams to get better. I think there are some, obviously, you know, maybe the Astros could use a first baseman. Maybe the Red Sox could use a second baseman. They've had trouble moving on from the Pedroia era. So there are places you could point to, but I think it's much easier to make matches on the pitching side, just because, you know, it's the cliche, everyone needs pitching. It is true. It continues to be true. It's perhaps even more true now that just every team uses more pitchers. And now that we've seen bullpens struggle the way that they have this year, every team could talk itself into needing a bullpen upgrade. And and you mentioned Cleveland, which I think is just really going to be riveting to see what they do, because, of course, they were talking all winter about trading Bauer, about trading Kluber. Ultimately, they held on to those guys. Then it looked like they were falling so far behind Minnesota that they might end up dealing them. Now they've halved the Twins' lead, and they're also currently in a wildcard spot. So can you still sell that to your fan base, which is already riled up because you didn't do much over the winter? Now we're going to get rid of perhaps our best healthy starter. Of course, they're hoping Kluber comes back. They're hoping that Carrasco is healthy enough to come back and, and just healthy in general. And that you might get, you know, other reinforcements on on the pitching side, but I don't think you can really count on those. And so, you know, even though Bauer is only under contract for one more year after this one and makes sense as a, a trade target for some reasons, it's a difficult thing to do unless maybe you're trading him for offensive help that makes you better right now. But I don't, I don't know that you can find a hitter out there who is going to help them as much as Bauer would. No, and this is some I've done a few radio hits in, in Cleveland and this comes up like if you're going to move on f- you know, this comes up a lot like what do you trade Trevor Bauer for mm-hmm. because you know if because Kluber's getting all he's getting towards the end of his contract and then at this point like you're staring Francisco Lindor's free agency down the barrel in a couple years and you're not whatever you get back for the, the pitcher that you sell if that's Bauer right now it's probably not going to be better than Bauer before Lindor's contract or before Lindor's uh, team control is up. And so, I mean, it's just frustrating now because, yes, they're in a uh, a wild card spot, but Boston is right down, you know, is breathing right down their neck. And I would not necessarily bet on them holding on to that mm-hmm. uh, position. Um, but it, it's also their team that you mentioned going from sub replacement to just mediocre as opposed to a team like the Cardinals, which is just, you know, they've got 14 good position players and they've just all been 
just a little disappointing right. this year. Yeah. And yeah. And so like you take 10% off of a true talent 90 win team and they're an 81 win team and voila, that's what, you know, that's what you've got the math. I know the math doesn't exactly work out <laughs> like that if you're grading on, you know, but you, you know what I mean? Or yes. the, the Phillies who it would be tough for them to, to make a uh, position player upgrade. Yeah, that's uh, the, thing. the starting rotations. The is, is another, is another question altogether, but Cleveland just, Apart from Lindor and Santana and Roberto Perez, who is somehow slugging 527, it, they suck everywhere. <laughs> and so, right. like, it's not that hard for them to to go get, I, I don't know, yeah, like, I don't, we, it seems like Eduardo Nunez Frazier moves. or something. I yeah, mean, you know. You know it doesn't even have to be Clint Frazier, just whoever this year's Eduardo Nunez is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, just the the guy who can be a grade 45 at four different positions could be huge for them. Mm-hmm. Could make the difference between making the, the postseason and not. So it's it, it's just a bizarre situation and not, no, you know, the the ownership situation and the attendance situation there is what it is. And that's, it's it's not ideal, but... I don't know that it's better than the situation in Milwaukee is the is what I keep coming back to or Cincinnati, who actually made an effort, at least, even though they're in last place and have been a little bit unlucky. But it's just it's a very confusing situation. Um, that's one where I'll, I'll probably spend less time trying to anticipate what happens than just reacting to to whatever does, because that's they're the proverbial wild card right now for me. Yeah. You mentioned the Phillies, who I thought the lineup would be a strength for them. And it turns out they've had a a below average lineup or an average one if you remove the pitchers. And yet a lot of those players you'd think would be better than this. And you're kind of hoping that they will be. But again, it's difficult to make a major upgrade over some of them. Obviously, they lost McCutcheon. Maybe they could use a center fielder. There's just aren't a ton of attractive position players out there. I mean, there's Whit Merrifield, who I think many teams would want to have. And then you're talking about someone like Eric Sogard is suddenly appealing or, you know, Joe Sheehan recently ran through a a list of like decent players on bad teams who would figure to be pretty good trade candidates. And it's just not an attractive list of players. It's like James McCann, who's having a good year, but is James McCann and Miguel Rojas and Evan Longoria, Freddie Galvis, Todd Frazier. There just aren't a lot of really natural hitters out there who make a lot of sense for a lot of teams. And so I think that's a product of the fact that there just aren't that many teams out of it. And the teams that are out of it in many cases have already sold off or traded off a lot of those pieces. And so it's a weird market, but I think it's a really interesting one because of the aforementioned playoff picture, because so many teams could conceivably talk themselves into being contenders and because of the trade deadline and because you can't wait until August to make a major move and pressure is on. If you're going to upgrade, you have to do it in the next few weeks. And the, the playoff picture is still very uncertain. Maybe by the 31st, it does clear up, as you were saying, but, you know, not necessarily. We've seen a few. T- and well, I was before we move on, usually we blame this on the second wild card, both yeah, the first and second wildcard teams in both leagues are separated by half a game right now. Yeah. So this is not, you know, an, art, an artificial construct based on the the new playoff system, uh, if we even consider it the new playoff system this far into the future. Right. Um, yeah, it's there's there's probably something to the stratification of teams that 
maybe 15 years ago, some of the Dodgers platoon or bench players would be starters on a team like the Tigers mm-hmm. uh, when there there was there was value seen as being a, a 71 team instead of a 61 team. But I yeah, it it's just there aren't that many uh, teams that are really going for it in the in the short term. And so even teams that are uh, that are going to uh, miss out on the playoff picture are still building for like the next year or two. So maybe that yeah that tightens up the uh, the trade market even more. I yeah I, I'm with you. I I don't know where those good position players are. I, I can identify the pitchers because right. you know we'll see what the Blue Jays are willing to give up, and we'll see if the Tigers are willing to to part with Matthew Boyd. What happens to the Rangers and the Diamondbacks and and other teams sort of on that bubble? I think there's. There's pitching to be had, particularly, you know, the Yankees problem is they need to upgrade over Jay Happ or CC Sabathia. And I don't know if those guys are really out there apart from mm-hmm. uh, Bauer and maybe minor, mm-hmm. but a team like the Phillies that just needs, you know, they're, they're throwing any old De Los Santos out there. Jake, Jake Arrieta might uh, need to spend some time in the IL. They just need a warm body. Those warm bodies are out there. Uh, so it just depends on what you need. Right. And then there's Lance Lynn just sitting out there with the potential well, he's to a, he's, change the I, I think he's a, a foundational building block because <laughs> right. the, build the Rangers him. have him locked up long term. And I'm <laughs> I'm like 45% serious about that because he because Miner's a free agent after next year and he's sort of a, a short term even if you do have him uh, for 2020, he's a, a short-term play. Lynn being signed that extra year, I don't know, maybe that makes him a more valuable trade chip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as you were saying, I mean, a lot of the guys who were on bad teams have already moved. I mean, the Marlins have already moved most of the guys that they had when they were trying to contend. The Mariners already did that. They were busy this past winter making those trades. The Tigers have traded guys the Orioles have traded guys, the Royals. I mean, these teams have kind of just naturally aged out of their windows of contention, but they've already made the decision that, okay, our winning days are behind us. We have to start over. And really, other than the Giants, the Giants are kind of like the only team in that middle area where they've kind of been trying to keep it going and maybe now are just finally getting to the point where they're going to give it up and say, this is the time when we have to move some guys or else we're going to stick with them way too long. You could make the case that they've stuck with some of them too long already, but this is kind of their last chance, I think, to get some value from the rest of this roster. And so they're like the, you know, the, the, the dead whale that falls to the seafloor bottom and suddenly is torn apart by just a, a feeding frenzy of sharks. It's like the giants. And What a vivid simile that yes, is. Yes, it is. And I, I just don't know that there's any other carcass out there for, for other teams to feed on well, in that way. If you're on the the lookout for a carcass, I think the Reds might be a, another um, yeah. uh, potential dead whale to fall to the Which floor. Which is a shame because they're pretty good. Yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> – well, here's the thing. That's what, one of the reasons that I liked what they did. They loaded up on guys who were only signed through this year. Right. So there's no real attachment to Tanner Roark or or Puig or mm-hmm. Sco- Scooter Jeanette. Is yeah, you know, he wasn't one of their one of their offseason acquisitions, but he's winding down his time with the team. I've I've just been reluctant to toss them into that bin. They're definitely a team that could sell off and make a big difference. Maybe not to the extent that like the 2016 Yankees did, but they could really reload quickly uh if they're if they're smart about how they uh how they approach this trade deadline i've just been waiting for three months for them to get good yeah. 
and they haven't yet. Yeah. And so we'll see. Either to get good. They're another team that's, that's of, on that fence. Of record or, or to start playing worse or, you know, one of those things it, it seems like has to give because uh, right now I, the Reds have, does any other, I think the Cubs have a better underlying base runs record than the Reds do, but, uh, and I don't, I don't even know if any other team in there. They're sixth in the National League in run difference. Right, yeah. I think was, the, was what I came they're up with. They're right there with the Brewers in terms of, you know, base runs underlying record and they're a bit behind the Cubs and and then they're ahead of the other teams in the division. So it's tough to, to decide, yeah, we have to sell, but I mean, because they're so close and because they have outscored their opponents by 27 runs. So I don't know whether it's better for them. I think the best thing for them would just to, you know, win out for the rest of this month. But if they don't do that, then it's almost like maybe they should just go on a long losing streak all of a sudden so that they can get something of value from those players rather than holding on to them for the rest of the season to no end. All right. Only time will tell. Uh, So we know nothing, but uh, I hope the next time (laughs) we talk, we will know more. Yeah, looking forward to finding out what happens in the rest of this month. This is actually going to be pretty fun, I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I am very interested to see what this trade deadline brings about because mm-hmm. uh, the uh, we've never done this before. We don't say yeah. that that much in this job, but we have never, you know, we have never done this before. <laughs> well, whatever happens, we will discuss it here soon. All right, talk to you later. Bye. That'll just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me today. Thanks to Eric Longenhagen, who you can find his work at Fangraphs.com and his Twitter at Longenhagen. Thanks to Bobby Wagner, who took time out from writing love letters to Pete Alonso in his own blood and produced today's episode. Thanks to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Gavin Lux, and Mike Miner for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Federal is proud to serve more than 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that's 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash MLB for more information, call 1-888-842-6328, or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. All it took for me was downloading the app, plugging in a couple cables, and all of a sudden I realized how bad the internal speakers on my TV really were. So if that sounds good to you, go to Sonos.com to learn more.